Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal with SALT Talks, like our goal at our SALT conferences, which we host twice a year, once in the United States and once internationally, is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Christopher Hahn to SALT Talks for a very timely conversation about the state of our nation's uh, political rhetoric and our entire uh, sort of societal uh, situation that we're in right now. Uh, but Christopher Hahn is a highly sought after progressive pundit and the host of the Aggressive Progressive podcast. He hosts a national syndicated radio show and has made over 2,500 national television appearances on a variety of political, pop culture, and public policy topics. Christopher's skill in dealing with public policy issues was honed during five years where he served as a senior aide to U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, who's a Democrat from New York, as most of you know. During that time, his responsibilities included dealing with the post-9-11 homeland security activities, domestic policy, federal environmental matters, and economic development. As Chief Deputy County Executive for Nassau County, Chris was the senior appointed official under County Executive Tom Swazi. Uh, Chris was primarily responsible for directing and managing the daily administration, communications, and operations of county government. Appointed at the age of 33, Christopher was the youngest person in the history of Nassau County to hold the position of Chief Deputy County Executive. Chris serves on the boards of Stony Brook University, the Regional Plan Association of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and the New York League of Conservation Voters. Chris earned his BA at the University of Albany and his JD from St. John's University School of Law. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT, also had a brief stint in politics, not quite as long as Chris's. But with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. You see how he, see how he starts it? He's like a I always have to get it in. karate chop right <laughs> in the Adam's apple, trying to remind people that I was in Washington for 11 days. But you want to know something, Darcy? <laughs> Donald Trump right now is less than a Scaramucci away from leaving yeah. the White House, unless, of course, he blows up the White House between now and his departure. So, Chris... Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, you're known as an aggressive progressive. Yeah. So first of all, what does that mean to you? What, it, what should it mean to others? And then tell us something about yourself that we couldn't find on your Wikipedia page that he just carefully read for. Yes, jeez. You read the whole thing off the Wikipedia page. It was really um, impressive, Dorsey. It was impressive. Um, so, you know, aggressive progressive is really um, – it's something that bookers would call me. You know, you got two types of progressives over at Fox News, and that's where I've done, you know, the 2,500 television appearances, you know, all but maybe 200 of them were at Fox News. And bookers would say, you know, there are two types of progressives. There are the, you know, kind of wishy-washy progressives that are just go along to get along. They want to try to be liked by everybody who watches them. So and then there are- sort of like passive progressives, something like that? Yeah, you know, guys who kind of have Stockholm syndrome, they're over at Fox News and they've adopted a more conservative tone. Uh, and then there are people like me who 
uh, aggressively defend the progressive position. So I have been called the most aggressive progressive that is consistently been on Fox. I've been on Fox News since 2010. And, um, you know, it's gotten very different over the years. Uh, it used to be a lot more fun interacting with the audience members, uh, you know, up until really the last two, three years. Um, you know, I, I'd always have the same conversation when I'd meet people. Oh, we love seeing you on TV at Fox. You know, you're so articulate. We don't agree with anything you say, but we love seeing you. <laughs> you know, now I get a lot of stare downs. You know, a lot of these conservatives think that, oh, he's a progressive. He's a liberal. He's probably weak, um, you know, and, and then they see me in public and I'm a little bit more uh, more put together than they might have thought I might be. <laughs> so I did play uh, college football and I, uh, I'm an avid runner and a triathlete and, uh, you know, fitness is really, really the one consistent thing in my life, probably my entire life. Uh, so it's a... Uh, it's a big, a big deal, but it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I try to, to make my points and I'm passionate about my points that I make and I don't allow conservatives to lie when I'm sitting next to them, uh, either or sitting next to them or more, more likely lately in a box on a screen with them. You say, you say that Fox is different from 2010. It's now 2021. And you're saying that the audience may be a little more hostile towards uh, viewpoints. But how's Fox itself different? Well, I, I think that the opinion hosts, you know, are are far more extreme in some of the things that they are saying these days. Particularly, people like Tucker Carlson. I, I haven't been on Tucker Carlson's show in in two years. Uh, I used to do Tucker Carlson's show every Friday night for for years from from the onset of the show. I did it almost every Friday night. Um, I think that that, you know, Donald Trump doesn't like me. Uh, that's pretty, pretty clear. He's tweeted about me. He's talked about me on radio interviews and says I'm one of the reasons why Fox has gone downhill. Uh, Tucker took that on and um, didn't do it. That hasn't had me on in a long time. Sean Hannity hasn't had me on since Trump has become president. Um, you know, Sean Hannity was the first show I ever did at Fox. I had done, uh, I, you know, I, I had done the internet show at Fox once and, uh, and then, uh, you know, the Hannity bookers called me to do Hannity like the next day. And I, and, and I was off to the races over at Fox News. I had a friend who was running for state Senate who wanted me to run her state Senate campaign. And I, you know, I, I had settled into a, a job at a law firm and I, I wasn't, interested in doing campaigns anymore. And I, and she had been doing some Fox news and I said to her, you know, I'd love to do some TV. I had done a TV show in the nineties, uh, out here called youth and politics. And then when I actually went to work for Chuck Schumer and then later Tom Swazi, I had given all that up and I wanted to get back in. And, uh, she said, well, you know what, they've got an internet show at Fox news. And if you do that for a couple of months, the producers will see you. And They'll put you on the regular show. I, I literally got a phone call while I was on the internet show the first time because I guess I have a good acting background, you know. And uh, I think that's well, you probably, grew up on Long. I mean, you got a good acting, right? You grew up on Long Island. We all got good acting backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's Hannity. That's O'Reilly. That's yeah. me. That's you. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're all, we're all a little crazy. John John Darcy's a Long Island transplant now from North Carolina, so he's all uppity about everything, you know. Yeah. So. 
So but let me let me ask you this though. You know, again, I have a lot of friends at Fox. You know, I hosted a show for the Fox Business Channel for two years. Yeah. Uh, I was a Fox News contributor and Fox Business contributor, uh, knew Roger Ailes, uh, and I have a lot of respect for many, many people at Fox. But it does seem like they've shifted the bell curve of conservatism, where now it's bordering on extremism. Am I wrong in saying that? And if I am, push me back a little and help. I think that's all conservatism. The entire conservative movement, Republican movement has shifted to this wacko conspiracy theory, you know, base driven, you know, method here. I'm okay, let, me, words. let me let me let me test something on you and you react to it. Uh, the is the conservative movement when you look at the rage that took place at the Capitol last Wednesday, yeah. mostly white people, I didn't see a lot of brown and black people in that, but maybe there were, I just didn't see them from the pictures, so who, who knows? So my, my, my worry is, is that that conservative movement is an aging white demographic that is buying catheters and my pillows from Fox News. Am I wrong about that? What say you? No, I think that the conservative movement is not just an aging white movement. I think it's a borderline white supremacist movement, frankly that sees any change or shift in their power as an existential threat. I think that's a lot of that's laziness, right? A lot of these people don't wanna compete with a broader market of people. They like to say that I'm a socialist, but they wanna hold on to their easy lifestyle and they don't wanna see more black and brown and gay and other people competing in their market and have a level playing field. That is unacceptable to them. And so this you, is you know, a last Charles gasp Lowe, of white. What'd you say? I'm just saying this is the last gasp of white people. Their demographic is shrinking and they're getting angry about it. And so they but, figure that they can't really run it as much as they used to and they don't want to cede power. So they're becoming anarchists. I think that this is very much similar Charles Blows can say it a lot better than I did. I don't know if you read his column yesterday and then he did a video on this. He compared the red hats to the red shirts of the 18 uh, of the post reconstruction era in Mississippi. Um, you know, Mississippi was a majority black state and the only way whites were going to, you know, maintain control was through violence. And, and I, you know, you know, people are comparing what happened on Wednesday of last week to a riot, uh, to a, to a protest over the summer that might've gotten violent. No, this was not a protest. This was a terrorist attack by forces that wanted to overthrow the government of the United States of America. Well, they, were, that coming building, to kill, they were coming to kill Nancy Pelosi. They, they were going to kill Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Mike Pence. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. There were people with zip ties. There were people in uh, body armor. Uh, this is this. You know, the only people they've arrested are the jokers who were taking pictures of themselves that think this is all a joke. But there were people in full military fatigues who looked to be moving as a unit in that crowd. I'm sorry. This is, you know, these, you know, these nine days cannot go fast enough for me. And, and, and I am not going to go back to playing this game. I am shocked that even after that, seven United States senators, six, excuse me, six United States senators still objected to the electoral vote. 
and 140 members of the House of Representatives. I'm sorry, the members from the members from the states that objected to their own states votes, they should be expelled immediately. I mean, it is it's nonsense. So I I was uh, Steve Schmidt, who you and I both know, uh, others from the Lincoln Project, others that are sort of center right people that are not Trump extremists, right, are calling for a very aggressive approach to these extremists and saying yep. that we need to snuff this out, that it's sort of 1924, and that they'll double down on this sort of stuff if we don't do that. What's your reaction to that? I agree. Uh, I I think we need to charge these people with sedition. I think that the president of the United States should not be immune from charges. I think that, you know, if I'm like Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney and, and Pat Toomey, I go to Mitch McConnell tomorrow and say, you expel uh, Hawley and Cruz and the others that join them from our conference, or I'm walking across the aisle. Uh, this is a this 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 should not be the time. The, the Republicans brought this on by placating Donald Trump for the past four years, really for the past five years. And and a lot of people, myself sometimes included, said, oh, he's a clown. You know what? They said the same thing about Adolf Hitler. And I don't like comparing people to Adolf Hitler. And 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 right now the comparison is not there. But you know what? In 1924, the comparison wasn't there yet either. And, and if this movement is not stopped, if that would have been successful last week, there is no doubt in my mind that I would not be living in this country today. I would be on, a, on my way out of here. I have been named. So, so let's talk about success, success, would, have been the assa- success yeah. would have been the assassination of Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Vice I President mean, Pence. Yeah. I think the Vice President feels today, it's a week after the insurrection, uh, he's working, he's going to go back and work for his boss, who basically was inciting that situation. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the president has not called Mike Pence since the insurrection that the president inspired uh, speaks all, is all you need to hear. I mean, the president on, on Wednesday had crowds chanting, kill Mike Pence or hang Mike Pence uh, outside of the Capitol where Mike Pence was. Mike Pence should have gone back to his office and he should have written a letter to the rest of the cabinet and invoked the 25th Amendment that day. So why do you think he didn't do that? Let me let me push back for a second. Mike Pence's staff would say that there's a, a week or so to go. Well, let's see if we can run the clock out with causing further mania. They would say if they invoke the 25th Amendment and remove him prior to the inauguration, it could, could cause more violence. Again, I'm in your camp. I want the yeah. president arrested. I've said that publicly on Twitter. Uh, I think his acts of sedition and traitorism. Are and by the way, thanks for the retweets, Anthony, because, you know, my following is a lot of crazies. And whenever you retweet me, I get some additional people. <laughs> You get some different crazies. Well, I lost some crazies. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Twitter took a lot of crazies off of my following, you know, and uh, thank you God. You actually didn't, didn't lose that, that many, Anthony. And it's a sign that the crazies unfollowed you a long time ago. Because yeah. You were, uh, you were yeah about well, I, I lost three or four thousand. I didn't lose 40,000 like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but I lost three or four thousand. But but I, I I don't you know, I, I'm not worried about my Twitter following. I'm worried about the health of the country. I'm worried Me about too police officers that are dying in the face of arrest insurrection. I'm worried about the collaboration 
that these insurrectionists could have had from inside the government or inside the Capitol Police. I'm worried about Josh Hawley and Senator Cruz, who are smart guys, Chris. I mean, they know better than to be doing what they're doing. I'm worried about all of this political expediency. And the reason why I wanted to bring you on Salt Talks is that you've been at the center of our political system for several decades. You've been, a, you've been in a trench. You're a trench warrior. Yeah. Uh, you've seen differences. You've seen people reconcile differences. You've seen people create compromise that actually sort of hate each other. What, what, what would you do here? Let's say that you were the czar and you could wave a wand that could help heal the nation. What are some of the steps that you would want to see happen? Well, you've you got to start with justice, Anthony. You know, I, I saw that, you know, there was a letter written to Joe Biden by some of the people who opposed, who objected to his election, saying, oh, let's call for unity. Let's let bygones be bygones. No, I, you know, we're past that. We need justice. There needs to be accountability and justice and a full airing of what actually happened and all those who were involved. And there should be resignations from people who spurred it on. And that includes Cruz and Hawley, who definitely, as you suggested, knew better. So Josh Hawley likes to pretend he's this man of the people. He went to Stanford and Yale and then taught at St. Paul's in London. Uh, you know, he is one of the brightest minds in the Senate, and he absolutely knows better. And frankly, so that he knows better and allowed this to happen holds him more responsible. I mean, I want to see Marsha Blackburn and Rick Scott and the others who objected after the violence expelled from the Senate. Uh, and I know that, that people say, well, that's going to cause more divisions. I don't know how much more divided we could be in this country than we are right now. I mean, we've got people literally willing to, to, to commit violence. And I don't believe that this was the end of anything. This could have been the beginning of something. So the government has to be a government of people who are willing to face reality. And, and people who know reality, like Cruz and Hawley, I can almost let like some of them go. I don't think Tommy Tuberville lives in reality, right? But Tommy Tuberville was a football coach at Alabama. He didn't teach at St. Paul's in London. Maybe I could give him a little bit of a pass. But when guys that are Harvard and Yale and St. Paul's are edging people like that on, they, they got to go. They've got to go. And, and the good Republicans, and I believe there are some good Republicans still, need to call on the bad Republicans to go or they need to cross the aisle and then allow for a more, you know, stricter, uh, you know, a more comprehensive policy to be placed in, in, into effect because this, this can't stand anymore. Well, you know, and again, we're, we're, we're in agreement. Uh, it seems like uh, I've lost my party. Uh, I don't know where to go with my center right positions on business and regulation and the promotion of economic growth and sort of agnosticism to the social liberties in our society. I sort of feel like our, society, people should be able to live and do what they want with their own bodies. And they should certainly have any choice that they want related to their sexual preferences. Uh, But I'm a sort of center right person on business and growth. And uh, I would like to see a restoration of capitalism, but obviously fairness for people as well. I think Um, I'm a center right on business issues. I, you know, I, I, but, you know, I, I, 
I want to see economic growth that benefits everyone, and I want to see everyone have the opportunity for that growth. I do believe that government can step in and help pe- and should step in and help people level that playing field. I think in the richest country in the world, we shouldn't be allowing people to starve. We shouldn't be allowing people to to die, you know, to go bankrupt because they break their arm or have a serious illness. But I do want to see opportunities for growth and economic success in this country. So, I mean, I think you, there's a perfect place for you in the Democratic Party, Anthony. You know, yeah. it's a big tent and there are people, there are a lot of pro-growth Democrats. Right. They used to call them Clinton Democrats they used to, or, or, or yeah. TLC it's, Democrats. It's just, it's just one of these things where, you know, you're hoping that you can provide some restorative health to the Republican Party that it doesn't go completely off the rails because yeah. if it does, there, it will lead to further psychosis I, I think that they're off the rails know, trauma for the world but it is I don't think they're coming I don't think they're coming back I I, um, I talked to a bunch of people from the Lincoln project some of them with your help and your introduction which I really appreciated yeah uh and and you know a lot of them are never going back right Rick yeah. Wilson told me you know in certain terms I'm never no, going Steve back. Schmidt Rick you know the, all Schmidt. those guys have left no question yeah I mean they're not He's going registered back. as a Democrat back. there's nothing to go back to it is a it is the new know nothing party. It is not a party that wants to believe in facts. It's not a party. I mean, when I first started working in the U.S. Senate in 1999 or 2000 with Chuck Schumer, you know, we had differences with Republicans, but it was differences on how to govern and how government should be involved in solving different problems, and we would work it out. We didn't disagree on reality. We all believed here's the problem and we had different ways of solving the problem. And that, by the way, that was a healthy debate, which is what the founders wanted. The founders did not want to have a government that moved too fast. That's why it created the system that it did. That's why it's been so stable and economically successful for the past 240 years. But what we have right now is we have one party that lives in reality, the Democratic Party, and we have one party that does not. The Republican Party. That's not sustainable. Let me let me me push back again a little bit, because there is a fringe to the Democratic Party that is, you know, I might have to say the radical left, but it's definitely way left or leaning than I would think mainstream America is. And so when I'm getting lit up and I'm getting my hate mail and I'm getting people telling me they're going to come kill me and all the stupid stuff that's happened to me over the last year, uh, one of the things that's laced in there is, well, you're now a socialist. You're running with the socialists. And so what do you say about the configuration of the Democratic Party today? And is there anything about your party that you're worried about? I mean, even the furthest left person in the Democratic Party lives in reality, right? Um, and the people who are, you know, I, I always like to say I get called a socialist. 10 or 15 times a day by people who I am much better at capitalism than, right? People who have jobs in the government or who are living on a pension who are receiving social security or Medicaid or Medicare are calling me a socialist. Um, You know, look, you know, when I was 29 years old, I had all sorts of ideas of how to change the world. Uh, People like AOC, who's just turned 30, uh, and hasn't been beaten down by Washington yet, she should be pushing for everything she can because quite frankly, the center in this country since Reagan has moved right. 
It has not moved left. And the only way to get it to move back left is to start further left so that when you make your compromise, which is what these people are all willing to do, by the way, they're all willing to compromise. Just because they start on the far left doesn't mean they're not willing to compromise somewhere in the middle. The problem is the middle is to the right right now. And so what AOC and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and others, they are trying to start the conversation further to the left. And I, you know, as somebody who's negotiated a lot of things in my lifetime, I could, I could see where that is helpful. I mean, you would never, you would never start your negotiation with where you want to finish it. And unfortunately, right-wing media says, oh, look where they are. They're insisting on this or that or the other thing. And then, and then it gets echoed. And then that's the Republican Party position. The Democrats, for all the talk of the liberal media, do not have a, a single media personality that can drive the entire public opinion of the entire party, including elected officials like Republicans have. I mean, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, they get on a, a you know a drumbeat of a certain issue, and the entire Republican Party, the entire conservative movement, is right there with them. So I, I got to bring, I got to introduce John Dorsey to the conversation because we have to get our ratings up. Apparently, he's getting a lot of fan mail that he's a new budding television star and all this stuff. He's got great hair. Yeah, so I'm going to introduce him in a second, but I want to ask you one last question before John comes in and tries to outshine me and all that millennial sharp elbows and everything that he's capable of. Two Gen Xers, man, we're fading. Yeah, it's it's hard hard on me to be candid, Chris, but uh, (laughs) Donald Donald Trump has been permanently suspended from Twitter. Uh, his Facebook, Apple, Google have removed Parler from their app stores. Uh, I think it's companies called Stripe has taken the payment protocol away from his electioneering at this time. What is your reaction to all that? And and is that a appropriate thing to do? Inappropriate thing to do? Uh, I was on a show with Piers Morgan in London. Uh, he said, "Well, what about the Ayatollah?" Yeah, Ayatollah still has his Twitter account up. By the way, and, I, and I'm going to editorialize you for a second. I think it was totally appropriate because they are mounting another potential yeah. insurrection. And so, so, but I'm interested in your reaction and where do you think we'll be post Donald Trump and what will Donald Trump be doing? Well, he's going to have a lot harder time doing it without Twitter, right? I mean, Parler is no Twitter. And it never will be. And now that they're taking it off the app store, it's going to be very hard for people to get on parlor. You're going to have to really be dedicated. Um, the First Amendment does not apply to private actors. It is, uh, you know, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, he's violating. No, he can go to the White House press room. You know that place. You worked there for 11 days. He can go down there and, and, and make a statement to the entire world right now if he wants to. The problem is, is that media people will scrutinize it and it will, won't go out unedited. So I think it's very appropriate. He's been lying to people that has incited violence. There is a police officer dead because of what the president has been saying for the last nine weeks. Okay, more than that. Prior to the election, he said it was going to be rigged. And then after the election, he's been saying it was rigged. Even in his statement conceding the election, he said it was rigged. I mean, this man is beyond well, yeah, his lies that have led to this sort of level. Absolutely. Of no question he is directly responsible and should be held accountable. What do the Fox News pundits say about that? They agree with him that the election was rigged, even though Fox is putting these intercessional uh, infomercials, lacing them into their uh, punditry. 
that there was no fraud. The the pundits think that, or are they used doing that to make money, or I, I don't know. That? You know, I I um, you know the main conservative I still go on is Laura Ingram. She has said that the election's over. I don't watch the show too much. Uh, you know, they have. They, I think their main grievance is the institution of vote by mail. Uh, and and how that is maybe a violation of their state laws and it should have been tried along those lines, whatever. Uh, it all needs to stop. I mean, people need to say, congratulations, Joe Biden, you're the president of the United States on January 20th at 12.01 p.m. You know, this is uh, this, this, this constant whining grievance culture. I don't know how, I don't know how anybody lives in it. I don't, I don't know how anybody lives in it. They, they, always complain about Democrats and liberals being snowflakes and whiny, you know, but Donald Trump's entire campaign was, look what they're doing to me, even as president. I get it when you're running for president, you could be a grievance candidate, but he was the government for the last four years. He was responsible for everything. And he lost 13, he lost 13 million jobs. It's crazy. Okay. I'm turning it over to John Dorsey Go easy on Chris, okay? He's you know he's a he's a nice guy. He's a fellow Long Islander. I don't like scaring millennials either, John. I know yeah. I I tend to do I that. Know. We can be a little bit aggressive and progressive the way you are. So uh, fighting fire with fire here, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna press you a little bit on the censorship issue, and I'm not gonna editorialize. I just want to ask you the question, uh, frankly, because I think it's a very complex issue. Uh, the idea of you know deplatforming people, deplatforming apps, and big tech working with government to basically uh, arbitrate on what's allowed to be said and what's not. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, who's, who's a controversial in some quarters, but he's definitely a contrarian commentator. He's among the leading voices that say that this event at the Capitol is basically going to be liberals 9-11, where they're going to use it as pretense to continue to strip civil liberties away from people uh, under the guise of public safety. Are you worried at all about the creep of sort of authoritarianism when you have big tech and big government working together to determine who has a voice and who doesn't? No. And Glenn Greenwald's an idiot. Okay. He's an idiot. I'm not going to mince words. He's an idiot. Uh, what authoritarianism was what happened on Wednesday. They were trying to install Donald Trump as an unelected king in this country. Glenn Greenwald is a monarchist. And I am not worried. First of all, if the government was telling Twitter and Facebook what to do, that would be a problem. I would have a problem with that because that would be a violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Twitter and Facebook did it on their own because Donald Trump for the past five years has been violating Twitter and Facebook's user policies. And he's gotten away with it because he's newsworthy, because he's the president of the United States. They've given him a newsworthy exception. Now that that newsworthy exception has actually caused somebody to die, they are concerned about future liability of continuing to platform Donald Trump. So they don't want to be associated with Donald Trump anymore. Um, you know, you can make an argument that that the, the, the vending platform Stripe, which processes the president's campaign contributions, uh, deplatforming him could have some First Amendment impact because Buckley v. Vallejo has equated spending of money with speech. 
in the Supreme Court, and that's a, a very long, long-term uh, precedent of, of the United States Supreme Court. But, you know, Greg Greenwald, you know, should probably read those things again. Maybe he's forgotten them. Uh, but he is not, he is not, not right. He's incorrect. And, and quite Where frankly, I am, I am a civil libertarian in a lot of ways. And I would never, the government should never be allowed to infringe on people's free speech, no matter how disgusting it may be. And what's going on right now is not the government infringing on speech. It is platforms who have rules saying you're going to follow all rules or you're off. And they are also concerned about their long-term financial liability for what's being said on those platforms now that they know what they've caused. Related to that, do you have a view, a strong view on Section 230? I find it kind of funny that uh, a lot of conservatives seem to think that by uh, repealing Section 230, it would actually create more freedom of speech on social media outlets, whereas the, the provision actually prevents these outlets from being held liable uh, for speech that's made on the platform. So if, if you actually stripped it, it would force these social media outlets to censor a lot more speech. But do you have a strong view on that issue? Uh, I, I think that the president, you know, sees a little mark next to his name. So he, he pushes for Section 230 to be repealed. Uh, I don't have a strong view on it, but I also think that you know, one of the reasons why they're pulling people off their platform is liability, because even though they have some protection for it, uh, once you knowingly allow this stuff going on, it's, it becomes it becomes a, a reckless standard here, I think. And it's been a while since I've actually practiced law. So forgive me. But I did go to St. John's where they actually teach you the law, not Harvard, where they teach you the theory of the law. So it's a, maybe you, pet, I know Anthony passed the bar on his third He's taking a shot at me. 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 John's going to mention the fact that I blew, blew up on the bar exam a few times. You know, I was out water skiing in Asset Bay. I didn't realize you had you know, these, all, all these arcane things, but I did pass it. I eventually passed it. Keep going, Darcy. Go ahead. I passed it. I got fired again. bar story. I was so worried about failing the bar. I, I buried myself in studying for the bar. Two weeks before the bar exam, two things happened. I had a girlfriend that I stopped seeing as I was just studying the bar. And I told my mother, if anybody dies, just don't call me until after the bar. So the bar ends, I finished the bar. I'm in the city, my, my girlfriend lived in Manhattan. She was a ballet dancer. I call her up, I go, I'm gonna come over. Um, I'm going to come over. I just finished taking the bar exam. She's like, Christopher, we broke up like three weeks ago. You, we were on a phone call. I told you, you know, you're too intense with this studying. I, I've got to go. I, and you just said, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so I didn't even realize I'd broken up with her. So sorry. Uh, at, least, at least you were buried in your studies. I think she was originally from Manhasset too, by the way. Even Manhasset or Roslyn, something like that. Just, just me. She had good judgment if she was from Manhattan. Okay, one of those going. North Shore wealthy communities. Yeah, we're very third. We're very <laughs> smug and very self-important up here on the North Shore. Yes. I want to switch gears a little bit with my line of questioning here. In Georgia today, you know, we have two Democratic senators after the runoffs. We have a black pastor and a 33-year-old Jewish progressive Democrat. Uh, it just goes to show you how much the electoral map 
uh, and the makeup of each of these parties and the electorate has shifted uh, in the last five to 10 years. It's been a slow trend in Georgia, yeah. but you're seeing other places really evolve, some becoming more blue, some becoming more red. How do you think the electoral balance of power is going to continue to evolve and shift around the country? Well, I'm very concerned about gerrymandering now that the Democrats failed to take back state houses uh, in this past cycle. Um, you know, I think that that's the biggest problem in this country because you wind up having, you know, we're talking about extremism on both sides. You wind up having uh, people who are only concerned about winning their primaries and never have to really face a broad section of voters um, because, you know, they, they're going to win their seat based on their party affiliation if they, if they survive a primary. So that's my main concern. I do think that presidentially, um, you know, Georgia now being firmly in play, uh, first of all, you know, congratulations, Stacey Abrams, because uh, it was her work that made that all possible. Uh, and, and the reason why Texas didn't similarly turn is because they didn't have a Stacey Abrams. I mean, I think Beto O'Rourke's a great candidate, but he's not the organizer that Stacey is. And, and I think that uh, we've got to find that Stacey Abrams in Texas and in North Carolina and Florida to uh, turn those states uh, at least purple. You also um, saw Hispanic voters in Texas and in Florida and elsewhere turn toward the Republican Party uh, more than they had uh, in, in 2016. They sure they did. Got a much larger share of the vote. They uh, sure did. I mean, you only need to look at Miami-Dade County to understand the story of Florida. Uh, Hillary Clinton won it with 68% of the vote, and Joe Biden won it with 54. That's a huge shift in one of the largest counties in the state. Why did that uh, happen? Is it sloganeering? Is it defund the police? I, I think that there was a lot of uh, lies being said about socialism and communism, uh, particularly uh, in Spanish language media that was not countered by the Biden campaign well enough. And, uh, and that, you know, you can't allow a lie to get, a, you can't allow a lie to, to linger. You got to get on it immediately because it'll travel fast and it'll set in and it'll become gospel. And they lied about them. I mean, how could anybody think, I mean, I've known Joe Biden since you know, I worked in the Senate and started working in the Senate in 2000, I met him uh, then. He is as middle of the road as they come. And how can anybody think that Joe Biden is a socialist, communist? It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, in a lot of ways, he's the perfect president for the moment. You know, he obviously yes. has, has his issues. He's older, uh, he's maybe a little slowing down from what he used to be when he was in his 40s or 50s. Yeah. But the fact that he is a consensus builder might might be a godsend for us as we enter this precarious uh, period of our history. Absolutely. One more question for you. You're a New Yorker. Uh, New York and California in particular, I think, have suffered disproportionately during the pandemic because they, first of all, have the largest economies. But you've also seen New York City and San Francisco uh, undergo sort of a decay over the last several years, uh, economically and socially, as, as you see increasing homelessness and the livability of those cities has gone downhill. You see a big movement or a lot of noise at least being made about people moving to Texas and Florida. What do you think locally Democratic leaders in heavily Democratic states and localities need to do to make sure that they, they reverse these trends and remain competitive on, on a, from a business perspective uh, so these cities remain livable and, and exciting places to be? Well, actually, I think that this current crisis in New York City 
uh, is going to lead to a renaissance in New York City. Um, hopefully, we get a mayor that that has some vision and and can lead. Um, but you know, housing has gotten out of reach in New York City for millennials like you and artists and other people that you know led to the boom of New York City in the '90s and into the 2000s, and up until really a year ago when it, when it crashed because of COVID. And I think that now that we have an opportunity to see housing costs come down and maybe even more stock be made available because there's gonna be a less need for all of this commercial office space. I think you're gonna see more young people moving into Manhattan and, and Brooklyn, and you're gonna see that artist community come back and that creative class really take back over New York City. Cities are where are the future in this country. I, I know that COVID has people thinking, well, that's not gonna be the case. I, I don't believe that at all. I believe that what was making cities slow down was the fact that, you know, Anthony could afford to live there, but I, I can't, you know, and it, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that now it's going to be more affordable, more easy. We're, we're actually looking at his architectural digest living room, but that's fine. Okay. I mean, it's like, I probably could afford I mean, to live I mean, there. I mean, you know, he's but one of these limousine liberals. Okay. But I want to let you shoot it out with Darcy. Okay. I actually I said my see wife, the architectural digest, uh, uh, photographer my, behind you. My you wife and I were having can't a, afford living in New York. <laughs> my wife and I were having this conversation. I actually really want to move to wanted to move to Manhattan before COVID. I was really like, let's move to Manhattan. I mean, you know, I'm good for my career. It's good for I love Manhattan. I love being in Manhattan, and you know, it's a good thing we didn't. <laughs> so. Well, if you're still interested, you might might get a better price on that. I uh, think so. And I think it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of opportunity in Manhattan the next couple of years. And I think it's going to lead to a lot more creativity in Manhattan. And creativity breeds industry. It's not just going to be artists. It's going to be engineers. It's going to be people who want to design things and build things and create things. And you're going to see new uses for these buildings that used to host. You know, I don't think you're going to need 300,000 square feet for a law firm anymore. You're going to need less. Because people are working right. remote and they like it. Absolutely. Well, Christopher Hahn, thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. It's the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Please, everybody, go out there, subscribe, uh, listen to Chris's podcast. It's a fantastic podcast. I listened uh, to a lot of episodes as soon as you came on my radar uh, via Anthony, and, and it's a great show. Anthony, you have any final words for Chris before we let him go? No, I, I, Chris, I wish there were more people like you and Robert Wolf and others where we could just bring the country together, calm down the outside tension. Uh, but unfortunately, what I'm learning and what's something I don't like, and I know you don't like it as well, is the idea that there are people who are using movements and radicalization for their own personal ambition yeah. and for their own personal political attempt at power. Uh, and I'm talking to you, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley specifically. And so and some of these groups like CPAC and others, it's just like yeah, a grift. Really, really dangerous stuff. But I appreciate you coming on. We're going to have you back. Uh, we're going to need some of your insight on what the Biden administration looks like in six to 12 months. It's going to be a great thing. Um, and I really appreciate and it. And, and, Anthony, if you're you know, not, and if you're nice to me, before I put my hair up on eBay, I may let you borrow one night. I want to borrow it, man. If I had if your you hair, can't bring it into borrow, Manhattan. Man. You can only use it out here on Long Island. But I want to say one nice thing about you, because I saw that you got admit you were mixing it up with um, somebody on, on Twitter over the weekend. 
Um, and he was calling you out for your, the role you played in Trump's rise, which, you know, you know, you owned it. You owned the mistake. And you, you, you've done everything you can the past couple of, you know, past couple of years now to kind of take that back and, and, and inform people who don't want to listen to me that it's, that this was a bad thing. This is a bad guy. And, 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 and there's got to be a point in time where people, you know, they, they've made their mens, they've admitted wrong. I mean, you never, you never, you never tried to say, oh, no, I wasn't wrong. You said, I was wrong for supporting this guy. No, I owned it. But there's a, this is the problem with liberalism. I'm going to just tell you straight up. You have a lot of self-righteous, very sanctimonious people, holier than thou, uh, and they don't want to hear it. So they have a litmus test. I don't think it's that. Those people, you've got 74 million people that just voted for Donald Trump. We have to get them back into the fold of the United States of America. And I, so, I wish I could blame it on ideology, but I think it comes back to everybody wants to go viral all the time. Everybody wants to be relevant and people start to fade from relevance. They pick fights. They get more radicalized. They do whatever they got to do this, to maintain that relevance. You know, I, I know at some point, See, you know, Darcy's thinking of Rudy as he was saying that. See, that's why Darcy. Yeah, I mean, Darcy's I had that battle with Rudy Giuliani and it made me sad more than anything else because the guy used to be great. Right. And he's not anymore. He's a laughing stock. Yeah. He's pathetic. Well, and it's, it's I, you know. Makes me sad. I had a very good, close, long-term personal relationship with him. And as Anthony Carbonetti, who you know, and others, we would all say the same thing. We want to, you know, we want to John Avalon, you know, I mean, we, we want to remember Rudy the way he was 93 to 97, as opposed to the way he is here in 2021. Yeah. You want to remember him on, on 9-11? On 9-11 as well. Yeah. Those are, I, you know, I used to see him at the Yankee games and I would talk to him, I, you know, and have great conversations with him. And then the last five years, he started bringing up insanity at the Yankee game, not even on TV. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to mic drop you because this is my show. Okay. This is a Met city. Now <laughs> cut, cut <laughs> his mic, Darcy, cut his There's mic. No Met city. I know you're an owner of the Mets and I hope to one day go to a game with you. Cause my oh, wife, yeah, I'm no, I, mix, my, I'm I, mix I saw marriage. my I sold I'm my mix, stake to Steve Cohen, but yes, you'll I'm be in mixed my, marriage you'll be in my suite to, as soon as we can get the stadium open, to see, as soon as we get City Field open. I got to bring my wife because she's the Met fan here. I'm going to mix marriage. Right, amen. Well, we may leave you in the car then now that I know that. There you go. All right. Well, God bless, Chris. Thanks. God bless you too. On. And thanks for having me. And I look forward to seeing it. And, and you guys are great. And keep up the good work. Thanks again to Christopher Hahn for joining us on Salt Talks. And thank you for tuning in to Salt Talks. Just a reminder, you can sign up for all of our future talks at salt.org backslash talks and access our entire archive of salt talks at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. Please follow us on social media. Salt is on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And please tell your friends about Salt Talks. We love growing our community. We were able to use uh, technology and the internet in 2020 at a time when we had to cancel our conferences to grow our community digitally. And it's been a lot of fun to have these uh, virtual conversations with people like Christopher Hahn and guests across finance, tech, and public policy. Uh, on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today from SALT Talks. We'll see you back here again tomorrow.